Welcome to episode five of Adversity University. Today's guest is extremely distinguished. He has served as a consultant to some of the top teams in the MLB, NFL, and NHL, as well as numerous Division I athletic programs, primarily Boston University. He worked with multiple Olympic gold medal winning teams, women's soccer in 2004 and women's ice hockey in 1998. In 2013, he served as the strength and conditioning coach for the World Series champion, Boston Red Sox. Additionally, he was a part of the 1995 and 2009 Boston University Ice Hockey National Championship teams. Welcome and thank you for joining the podcast, Mike Boyle. Thank you guys for having me. What was it like growing up in Malden, Massachusetts? It's funny. Well, so in Malden, Massachusetts, my father was my high school principal, and I'm sure you guys can all relate to to being in that situation. So it was um, <laughs> it was interesting. It, I always say to people, it was less interesting because I always knew that's what was going to happen. It wasn't like one day he got appointed principal, you know, in the middle of my high school career from right, the right. time we were little. But you know, he was a your classic teacher coach who went from you know being a phys ed teacher to being an assistant principal to being the principal. And so we were the principal's kids, and we were expected to kind of be pretty straight arrows and toe the line. So I won't say there was a lot of pressure, but as I look back on it, there probably was a lot of pressure in terms of, I used to say, as long as you were perfect, everything was fine with my father. <laughs> just needed awesome. straight, you just needed straight A's to be good at sports. Other than that, there was no, no big deal. Yeah. Speaking of sports, um, during your freshman year, your personal sports career ended. Why did you decide it was time to take a different path? And what was the hardest part of that transition? Well, the hardest part is acknowledging at some point that you're just not good enough. And I think everybody comes, has that sort of whatever they want to call it, the come to Jesus moment where you realize, okay, I'm banging my head against the wall here and I'm just not good enough. I always, you know, I jokingly say lack of size and lack of talent caught up with me. I was not a great athlete. And I worked really hard to be probably a little better than average athlete. I managed to start my freshman year on the freshman football team, but I was grossly undersized, but I really got into lifting, trying to get bigger for football. But I mean, I got to, you know, varsity football and it was literally men against boys in my case. And it was kind of like, okay, I'm not, I'm really not really cut off for this. And that's, I think the hardest part is just that initial acknowledgement that, that you do have to move on to something else. We see it all the time with guys in hockey. You see some guys will hang around in the minus for a really long time and just never really accept the fact that, hey, this is, this is the end of the line and it's time to, time to do something else, time to figure out what's next in my life. But it's funny. I tell our guys all the time, play, play they kick you out. Play they tell you <laughs> if someone tells you to go home as long as they're paying you. Yeah. And I would have probably that. that. You realize that at a young age, too. You were probably, what, 18, 19 years old at that time? I was 18 because, yeah, it was funny. I was 17 for most of my freshman football season because I'm an October birthday. And at that time, it was not as unusual to go to college when you were 17 years old. So I turned 18 on Halloween of my freshman year. And that was – I probably only had, you know, two or three more football games left in me after that point. I went through one spring practice at my – ass kicked a little bit, get thrown around by some real men and, uh, and realize that, okay, it's time to, time to do something else. That's awesome. What kind of led you into the path of strength and conditioning? It, what really led me into it was not being a good athlete. I think it's interesting. Most of this good strength and conditioning coaches that I know are the classic overachiever types who had to work really hard to get better. And so I was one of those kids. I mean, I can remember as a very young kid, you know, 
reading books on how to get better at stuff, stuff that kids probably at 14 in, you know, 1973 weren't doing reading books on baseball. I can remember reading a book on Gail Sayers about running hills and going and finding a hill near my house and running hills, trying to get faster and trying to get in better shape. I was lifting weights in my, when I was 14 years old. It was maybe even 12 years old. It was 1971, 72. You know, I was going out for runs. I, you know, I was, it was really unusual at that age for people to be this into the, the process, but I really got into the process of self-improvement. And I always think I learned a tremendous amount because I wasn't good. I don't know if I was talented. I don't know if I would have learned as much. That's why with my kids, I'm really trying to teach them about work habits. One of the things that you don't learn, because both of my kids are pretty good athletes, but much better. They, they get it from their mother, I'm thinking, because they certainly don't get it from me. But, <laughs> but a lot of times what happens and what we found, you know, coaching at the college level is that kids have very little adversity. We did an exercise one time. It was really interesting. At, uh, we used to do, we were always doing team building stuff when I was at Boston University. And we went away on a retreat and, we brought a psychologist with us and the team building exercise was hardest thing you've ever done. And it was really interesting. So we, every kid had to go around the room, everybody in the team coaches did it too. And we had to talk about the hardest thing that we'd ever done up to that point in our lives. And some kids had some incredible stories. We had one, uh, and one of our players had a sister who was, um, had down syndrome and talked about, you know, growing up with a sister with down syndrome, another one, had a sister who had been born with a deformity and he talked about that. And then there were other kids who were sitting there so blank faced and they thought the hardest thing I ever had to do was decide between BU and BC. That's the hardest thing that's ever happened in my life. And you realize, wow, you know, when you talk about kind of first world problems and lack of adversity in your life, when you've never, you've never had a really adverse experience, it, makes the first adverse experience really difficult for you. You suddenly get to college and you realize, oh my God, I'm on the fourth line. You know, what do you mean I'm on the fourth line? I've, I've been on the first line. You know, everybody like could be you. Every kid was on the first line every place he's ever been. But when you get to college, there's got to be a fourth line. <laughs> there's got to be a first line and there's got to be a power play. And so a lot of kids, that's, you know, they're, unfortunately their first adversity comes way late. So it was fun. My kids, I was very, um, I always wanted them to be on teams that would lose. I never worried about, you know, parents worry so much about getting their kid on the best team. I wanted to be on, you know, the, the undefeated team, the team that goes to the brick tournament, wins the brick tournament, and does all this other useless shit in life. And I, my feeling was much more like, I want my kids to be on a team that goes about 500 and where they have to work really hard and where they're going to be disappointed by losing and where they're going to get beaten by teams better than them. And because you want those lessons to come sooner as opposed to later, when you start getting those lessons your senior year of college, you're probably really unprepared like for pro sports because the same thing happens in the pros. Guys show up in the pros and suddenly, you know, they've been the best player on their college team and they've got to try to make it on, the ch on a checking line. And a lot of the guys, again, are inequipped. They just don't have, you know, we saw that you had Alex Rigsby on. You know, we had girls same way with our national team. It's the same thing. There's got to be a fourth line. And where do you get fourth line girls? How do you make fourth line players out of people who've always been perpetually first line players so it's interesting yeah i think sports teach us so much more in life than just athletics and you hit the nail on the head there learning to deal with that adversity at a young age is just going to help you as you move on further and further in life so you the problem is that sports doesn't teach that anymore that's the biggest problem and i don't know if you saw it but there was a great tweet and someone said uh 
in the Michael Jordan documentary, they said the best part of the documentary was where Michael doesn't make the team his freshman year and his parents get the coach and move him to a different school. And the guy was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That didn't happen. <laughs> but now, uh, you, know, you know, you don't make, you know, you're not on the first line of your high school team. You're going to another. And so, you know, what we teach kids most of the time, unfortunately, now, how to avoid adversity. You know, we become the parents who, who constantly hover, making sure everything's okay, making sure my kid gets enough playing time. Like my son was bitterly disappointed. He played JV hockey this year, and it killed him to play JV hockey. And it was the best thing that happened to him because he played a ton. He played on the first line. He scored a bunch of goals. It was all really good stuff. But it was still a bitter pill to swallow that he didn't make the varsity. But those you, and that's the difference you do. You hope that sports will give you that adversity, but as parents, we're doing a really shitty job of that. A lot of times. Um, One of my favorite quotes is uh, prepare the child for the path, not the path for the child. And I think a lot of times with us, with um, constantly removing obstacles, we're getting involved in situations that we shouldn't be getting involved in, whether it's, even dealing with coaches, I told my kids all the time, you want to talk to a coach, talk to them. I've tried to, ideally, I would never talk to a coach for my kids in a perfect world. I think, again, with, with my daughter, with Michaela's situation, when she was in, I think, eighth grade, I had to talk to her coach because she was the leading scorer on the varsity team as an eighth grader, and the coach was putting a tremendous amount of pressure on her. And, you know, she'd come home days, some days in tears, and I had to call the coach up and be like, this kid is 13 years old. You know, she's playing with 18-year-old women who have to drive her to practice. You know, she's three years away from a driver's license. You, you know, you got to lighten up a little bit. And that might be the only conversation I've had, I think, really with a coach in terms of when my kids were playing. I try, to, I try hard to stay out of it. And I always say that we, as parents, I always say you'll become and revert to being a, you know, a sports parent at the worst possible time. It's like I likened it to uh, – you know, the old Hulk movies, you know, where he doesn't want to turn into the Hulk, but he's just kind of sitting there and he's thinking, oh my God, you know, it's happening. It's like, and I can't stop it because you do want to protect your kid. You do want to do what's best for your kid. Yeah, absolutely. So getting back to your personal career, was there ever pushback against you and your style of training professional collegiate athletes? And how did you handle people who maybe spoke negatively about your process? In the beginning, always pushback, always. I can remember when I started working with hockey players on a, you know, a larger level, people would say, don't, don't train with him. Don't go there. He's going to train you like a football player. And I would always look at people and think, I don't, I'm not training anybody like a football player. I'm, I used to always tell them, I'm training you somewhere along the lines of a sprinter or a thrower in track and field, but definitely not like what people would consider conventional football training. But when I started my pro hockey training business, I, uh, a guy named Bob Murray, who's been in the aging business for a really long time, was uh, a former BU player and a former BU coach. And I met him. And actually, I still remember it was 1990. We were in the Final Four for the first time in um, uh, Detroit. And I, Bob was sitting behind me, and I turned around. And I said, I think I want to try to train some pro hockey players in the summer. I said, I need some AHL, IHL guys that will do everything that I say. I don't want any NHL guys at all. And he kind of looked at me, he's like, well, you don't want any NHL guys? I'm like, no, they're all know it all. They all think they know what they're doing. They're not going to want to listen. I said, I need desperate people who are going to be willing to do something unusual. And it's really funny. So Tom Fitzgerald, who's now the general manager of uh, the Devils, was one of my first clients. He was one of Bob's clients. He just left Providence and was playing 
had been in the minors for the Islanders. And so I had a bunch of guys like, like Fitzy and these guys who all came in and were just like, Hey, whatever, tell us what to do. We want to play in the NHL. And so I think I was smart in the sense that I knew there'd be a lot of pushback. So I stayed away from, I didn't try to get any Bruins players. I Bruins players much later on more so through the reputation guys saw what other guys were doing and thought, what the heck are these guys doing? These guys are getting faster. These guys are getting better. You know, they haven't, we had a kid, uh, the, the thing that kicked it all off, we had a guy named John Cullen. If you're a Pittsburgh Penguins fan, you're probably, even if you're a Penguins fan, you're probably all too young to remember John Cullen, but John Cullen probably played, you know, I don't even know. I'd have to look it up like, you know, 88 to 94 for Pittsburgh. Now he was 5'10", 180. He had a hundred points plus in the NHL. He was in the, on the power play with like Kevin Stevens, Mario Lemieux had played in the NHL all-star game. And, but he came out of BU and everyone said, you know, John Collin can't skate and didn't get signed an NHL contract, went to the then IHL in Flint, Michigan. And I think he had 180 points that year. Like some, like it was like a Gretzky kind of number. And he was the number one free agent that year coming out of uh, the old international hockey league before they merged the leagues. But those, we had those things kind of happen a lot and people started looking and thinking, wait a second, all these guys were doing what everyone says not to do. You know, we're not doing VO2 max training. We're not riding the bike for 45 minutes. We're lifting weights with our lower body. You know, I don't let the guys do wrist curls. We're, you know, we're working on getting really strong. You know, we're doing squats and, you know, hand cleans and all these things that everyone was saying don't do, but our guys are being really successful. So uh, it, but it took a while. It sounds like that was kind of your, you know, your breakthrough moment was, getting these IHL American League guys to come on and obviously, like you said, do what you said, but ended up, ended up working out for them because they obviously made it and were very successful, as you said. Um, what challenges came uh, with starting one of the first ever for-profit strength and conditioning facilities? It, the biggest challenge that happened there was just, and I, I had said this notes that I sent to you, was establishing a value. When It's really easy. I always say it's easy to say, I sell cars. And the car costs this much. And you could look and say, and a Mercedes costs this much, and a Hyundai costs this much, and we cost this much. When we started this for-profit strength and conditioning business, there was nothing to compare it to. So people were looking at us and saying things like, you know, I can join Gold's Gym for the summer for $99. Why should I pay you all this money? And we didn't, you know, we were trying to explain to them what the difference was, but it's really hard when you lack a comparative and we lacked a comparative at that point in time. So again, it was the same kind of thing. We had to basically, you know, we've always lived off of word of mouth and off of results. And people would look and think, wow, these, you know, we started doing this with high school kids. And almost immediately some of these high school kids started to have, you know, because think about it. Think, imagine being the first person in your peer group to really train. Yeah. <laughs> You'd make a pretty big jump. You know, we did that. Because you talk about breakthrough moments, we had, the, I think it was 1992 National Sports Fest, which was then the Olympic trial because the Olympics were uh, an amateur team. And we had a bunch, we had four guys go to the, uh, to the Olympic or to the, that sports festival. I think they brought 80 kids in. We had four. When they did, uh, Jack Blatherwick at that time did on ice testing. And the BU guys were one, two, and four in speed. Wow. And these were guys who've been squatting and cleaning and plyo and doing all stuff that people had said 
hockey players don't do any of those things. And suddenly we were able to look at that and say, yeah, but our guys are the fastest, first fastest, second fastest, fourth fastest. And it was interestingly enough, Joe Sacco, who became a head coach in the NHL uh, with the Avalanche and now is an assistant with the Bruins. Mike Sullivan, who became a head coach in the NHL, is now the Penguins head coach. And uh, Sean McEachern, who's actually been a head prep school coach for a bunch of years out here. Those were the three guys who had been on our program and doing what we had told them to do. And suddenly they're on ice speed. You know, it wasn't like, it was so dramatic in terms of where they were that it was now really easy for us to say, wait a second, where, you know, everybody else is wrong and we're right. I was, I always felt that way, but I needed those moments, you know, whether it was John Collin getting 180 points and, you know, playing in the NHL all-star game or whatever it was, or, you know, Joe and Sully and Sean McEachern, you know, testing at those level, we, we needed, validators we needed things to come out where we could say hey this is this is legit the interesting thing was the one kid we had a fourth player there tony monty who had not trained with us yet and he was at the bottom of in speed but two years later he was in the nhl and he obviously had a pretty good career yeah. same, same type of training program so we were able to validate what we were doing reasonably well yeah, looking back, the results definitely speak for themselves with your ability to improve athletes' sports-specific abilities, like their speed and strength. But what motivated you to become a pioneer in this field and change the way people thought, you know, hockey players should train? I don't think I thought about really being a pioneer or changing the way hockey players should train. I think I just thought about I wanted to do a good job. You know, again, I think that goes back to the background of grow growing up, you know, in a situation where your dad's a high school where he's a high school principal and everything is kind of about doing the right thing and so whatever it was for me when I was working with athletes what I really have always wanted to do is what's best for them I was never worried about kind of what was best for me or you know he was going to make me a pioneer or develop reputation none of all of that stuff was sort of I'm like the accidental tourist in terms of you know how did I get here like I, I you know I'm some days I I, I kind of laugh when I look at, you know, I look at a guy like, you know, like Mike Sullivan now, who's probably close to 50 years old and has won two Stanley Cups. And I think, you know, coached him when he was 18 years old. You know, we've got generations. We have now, last summer, we had 20 second generation kids. So these were, these were children of my former players who played in the NHL, you wow. know. And so, you, you know, you start realizing there was no real intention in any of this beyond we're trying to win games at BU we're trying to win a national championship we're to do the best job that we can do we're trying to help prepare our guys to NHL you know all the things that we thought were important at that time and then it just ends up where hey you kind of look at it and think wow this worked maybe even a little better than we thought you know even with the women like I started working with the 98 women's team because the coach was Ben Smith, who had been our BU assistant. He got the women's Olympic job, and he was like, well, you help me with these women. Most of them have never trained before. And it's the same type of thing. I have some incredibly close friends from that 98 team. And, you know, they all came, about 40 of them came to BU that summer and trained. And they lived in people's, you know, they lived in garages. They all over God's creation to try to get a chance to make that first women's Olympic team. But, you know, I never thought, you don't think, oh, this is going to be kind of this breakthrough moment either in terms of women's hockey, you're just helping out a, a buddy who's, you know, who you coach with and saying, yeah, I'll, I, I'll train your girls. So it's funny you say that you only focused on, you know, bettering the athletes around you and we're so focused on their results and their, 
success because everywhere that I've been, no matter the level, Triple A here with the Rampage with John Ang, uh, at UMass Lowell with Devin McConnell, at Mercyhurst with Tyler Travis, all you guys are the same way and you all are the most humble people I've ever met in my life. Like I tell John all the time, I, I can't thank him enough for everything he does or all of these coaches because they've gotten me where I am today and they never want to take any credit for it. But I don't think you realize like how much you do for us. But you said earlier that most, most of the strength and conditioning coaches are similar backgrounds, just very hardworking people that, you know, got to where they are. But I've never met a strength and conditioning coach that wasn't humble about what he does and helping his athletes. And I think it's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. But I think cause we were mostly grunts, you know, even like Devin, Devin's a perfect example. Devin, you know, was a, 20-year-old who went to Fitchburg State to be a goalie. And, I mean, the reason – well, not the reason Devin's a strength and conditioning coach, but a lot of the reason Devin's a strength and conditioning coach is because he walked into BU one day and was like, you know, emailed me and said, can I come and watch workouts? I didn't know who he was. You know, Devin McConnell, he's a goalie at Fitchburg. Sure. So he's in watching workouts, and I'm talking to him, and I'm asking him what he's doing. He said, well, I kind of have made myself the strength coach for my college team because we don't have a strength coach. And I'm looking at this kid and thinking, he's a junior in college and he's appointed himself kind of the de facto strength coach and now he's here asking really good questions making really good notes and i immediately kind of looked at him and i was like do you need a summer job <laughs> people like you and uh and so obviously i hired him to work for me in the summer and then i i got him i helped him get a position at stanford with a friend of mine totally non-hockey related and then i helped him with coach Bazin at lowell to, to get him to that position. But you're, I mean, it's, I just think there's something about strength and conditioning that, that attracts the grunt, you know, the person who really had to work at it. And so I think there is, you don't develop a big ego when you're not good. That's <laughs> you, true. So, so when you think like a lot of those guys, you know, you don't think all oh, these guys have really those and you're like, you know, I'm just, I wanted to be on the team. I wanted to be that I want to be able to, to, to be involved. And that was one of the reasons even getting into strength and conditioning. It was like, okay, here's a great way to, to stay involved in sport. Cause I never wanted to coach. It was really weird. I never wanted to coach sport. And so it almost, it almost ended up being this situation where the, the perfect thing happened for me. Um, no, that's awesome. And Dev's a great guy. I loved being there with him, just being around him and learning from him. He's so, you know, resourceful and, I just love that you guys take care of people too. You tailor workouts to, to guys that are injured or, you know, coming off surgery or whatever. And it's just awesome. You guys devote so much time into helping specific athletes, not just the team. You tailor workouts to specific needs and et cetera. Um, and I think any successful person experiences doubt on their journey. What are or were some of the biggest doubts and how did you fight through those negative thoughts? I think if you don't have doubts, there's a problem. <laughs> uh, I think, what do they talk about? the So I worked with the women's soccer team in 2004. I can remember I used to talk to uh, Mia Hamm a lot just because I loved her. She, you know, we had like, I'm out there with like these amazing people. I'm there with Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm and Christine Lilly and Brandy Chastain. I mean, it was like the most amazing group of women's soccer players you could ever hope to be dropped into the middle of. And I'm there. And I, you know, I just ask my, I always, I always like to ask my athletes questions, you know, thoughtful questions. And we were talking one time about this whole uh, self-confidence thing. And now Mia, you think about Mia Hamm, you say, okay, the greatest women's soccer player in history. 
And she looked at me. I still remember she was sitting at a train on a training room table, getting treatment, whatever, you know, sore hamstring or something. And she said, Mike, the greater the artist, the greater the doubt. Complete confidence is given to the lesser skills as a consolation prize. And I was like, what was that? Where did that come from? And she's like, my sports psychologist. And I'm like, tell me you have a sports psychologist. Tell me you go and talk to somebody about confidence issues. And she's like, yeah, all the time. And I was just like, okay, you know, here's the, the greatest ever in that sport talking about, you know, about self-doubt and about how, and, and but then you look, there's something if you study uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect and basically the Dunning-Kruger effect states that uh, the younger you are, the more confidence you have. And generally you're, you're fully confident that you're right about things that you're wrong about. And I mean, there's right. I mean, most of the people that are super confident are probably wrong and probably don't have a really good self-assessment and haven't looked at themselves. So I looked at, I was never confident ever. I don't, I'm still not confident. I did a webinar the other day and I started thinking, well, I wonder how that was. I wonder what people thought. And then I started getting text messages and a couple of emails guys saying that was unbelievable. But I was in a webinar with my peers with, you know, a lot of division one, college strength and conditioning coaches and you wonder, hey, what did those people think? Do they think I'm an idiot or do they think I know what I'm talking about? I think everybody, if you're not still going through that, then you're probably not still developing and improving because you should always be looking at yourself and thinking, you know, am I still, do I still have it? Am I still good at this? Am I getting better? I think that's a huge piece of the puzzle. Yeah, it's really important to never rest on your laurels and know that everyone can always get better and compare yourself to where you were at previously. So I yeah, think that's I definitely that's something that's helped you. Imposter dreams, you know, where I, where I get found out, where people realize that I was totally full of shit and I was just making all this stuff up. Like, I literally have dreams like that. And, uh, and I think, as again, I think, I think if you talk to most successful people, they would tell you that I've been very lucky in terms of two. I've had some super successful clients who were not athletes. And one of my clients who was uh, a, you know, multimillionaire, I mean, just ridiculous amount of money, owned a couple of um, professional sports teams. And I remember asking him one time, we were talking about, cause he said something about, Oh Mike, I'm just a regular guy. And I thought regular guy. And he's like, yeah, I think I'm a regular guy. I said, do you sleep with a notepad by your bed? He's like, yeah, everybody does. <laughs> and I was like, no, Steve, everybody doesn't. I said, only super motivated, highly successful people sleep with a piece of paper and a pen next to their bed. So when they have an idea in the middle of the night, they can write it down. I said, people like you do that. I said, the vast majority of the world just goes to sleep and doesn't worry about it. And he kind of looked at me. And, and what I've found is the real high achievers that I know are always a little bit odd. Yeah. In some way or another, there's something unusual about them where, the, you know, you think, ah, a little quirky, you know, a little OCD or whatever it is. And, uh, and you know, sort of ends up being um, more than, you know, you're kind of like, hey, that guy, he's, he's, he's a little bit much. So, but that's why they're successful. So you were a multi-sport coach early in your career, and in one instance, a coach of a football team wanted you fired. Fortunately, the other sports coaches did not. How did you handle this news, and did it motivate you to try to work harder or even change your coaching style? 
Um, it motivated me to work harder, not to change my coaching style, because I completely refused to change my coach. This, this football coach was, he was, you know, I always think if I, I, it doesn't do me any good to make a list of the worst people I ever worked for, but he is in the top three. <laughs> He's a bad person. And, and basically, he was the type of guy that was, I mean, in all reality, he was encouraging our guys to, do, to take steroids in a very overt way. Like he was, he would be praising, you know, we had people that we had, you would fail the drug test, but he'd praise those guys in meetings yeah. about, you know, about their strength level or how committed they were or whatever it was. And he didn't like somebody like me at all because I was totally, uh, is a completely different person. He once told me that I was a failure because I didn't want to leave BU. We had a meeting and he said, you, you, you're never going to amount to anything. He said, you like it here. You're comfortable. You never want to leave. And I said, I looked at him. I said, you know something? He said, my, my father's one of the most successful people I've ever met. I said, he had one job his whole life, one school. He said, so you can measure it any way you want. But I, I'm not measuring things the same way you did. The good thing was it didn't change what I did with football. I still worked my ass off for the football team while that guy was there. But I was lucky. It made me respect at that time Mike Jarvis was our basketball coach and obviously coach Parker was the hockey coach the whole time. But those were the guys that went to bat for me. The thing that saved me at that time at Boston university was that basketball and hockey were more important to the athletic department than football. Our football team wasn't very good. They had just fired their coach and brought this guy in. And our two most powerful coaches had gone into the athletic director and said, wait a second, he wants to fire my strength coach. I like my strength coach. I want my strength coach to be here. You know, this guy doesn't, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't Nebraska. This isn't Oklahoma where somebody gets to walk in and say, you know, the strength coach is gone and the basketball coach and the hockey coach have to have to sit there and take it. This was a different kind of situation. And I was lucky that I was in that situation. I really was because I remember thinking, wow, I'm done. This guy, like he has no interest in me staying around here. So. I'm sure that was a good feeling to have the majority of the coaches uh, be reassuring to what you were doing. And it was, it, it made, you know, that part made, you know, it's sort of a, but it's like a double-edged sword. Part of it is realizing, you know, the football guy doesn't want you and doesn't think you can do the job. So you, on one hand, you're, you're really disappointed. And on the other hand, you think, Hey, these two guys, you know, that both guys that were really important in my development as a coach really do think I'm doing a good job. Talk about like the bittersweet moment. I think that was a little bit of a bittersweet moment for me because, um, I think, you know, you want everybody to like, you, you want everybody to think you're doing a great job. You want think that you're a great strength coach you don't want you know a half or two-thirds or whatever it was so uh it was that was a little, a little bit tough to swallow but same thing i think it also goes to show that no matter how good of a job you're doing and how hard you're trying to please everyone you'll never be able to please everyone so. no you won't it's football is interesting in that way because football is sort of when the new football coach comes in because i went through uh, probably three or four football coaches at that time when we had football and it's always one of those, you know, we're not strong enough. We're not in good enough shape. You know, there's always, there's always lots of finger pointing at the previous regime. And so when you go through it, that's why hockey was so great for us. Cause it was just coach Parker the whole time. It never changed. And coach Parker was, I mean, when you talk about the best person to work for in sport, that was the reason I stayed. I, mean, I stayed at BU, but way longer than I should have at times when it absolutely made no financial sense for me to be there. But I loved working for Coach Parker because we'd have conversations where I'd say, we need this. You know, we need heart rate monitors. We need more bikes, whatever it was. And he would look at me and go, Mike, will it help us win more games? And I'd be like, yep, definitely will help us win more games. I'd be like, okay, do it. Like, those were the kind of conversations that we had. 
there was never any conversation about, well, you know, UMass Lowell is doing this, or this is what BC does. We almost never, I think we might've had one conversation like that in my career. And, and that's pretty good in a coaching situation when you can work for somebody. I think we were together probably, well, 90 to 2012. What's that? I was probably there 22 seasons. I was probably there for um, 600 wins. <laughs> wow. <laughs> if I'm guessing. I think I remember being there for his 300th. And I remember that before we left, he got to almost 900. So, yeah, I was there for close to 600 wins. And it was always about just it was always about getting better like you talk you go in and talk to him about getting better and you all you all he was about was how do we get better as players that's a culture that you want to be a part of and just getting better every single day and not only in the physical aspect so it kind of leads us in our next question as a strength coach outsiders may assume you're only focused on physical ability how important do you think the mental aspect of training slash competing is I think the mental aspect is really important, but at the same time, I think it's overrated. I think sometimes we can use sports psychology as a crutch, and I don't like that. But I do believe in you because you were at Lowell. I think culture is really important, and creating a culture of – I think there are things, logical concepts that are really important, like accountability and teamwork and those types of things. I'm not as much about, you know, I don't want you to come into my office and cry and tell me your problems. I want you to figure out how we're going to solve your problems. Yeah. And so in some ways, it's sort of like, I guess, like with everything I'm on, in terms, I think there would sometimes we'd have sports psychologists who would become enablers for players and players would have somebody to cry to and somebody to whine to. And I don't want that. But I also want to create a culture. And we did that. We, we created a, cult, a culture where you were accountable. Your teammates made you accountable. They held you accountable. Everybody knew the rules. Everybody, the great thing about Coach Parker, I mean, we had obviously, I, you know, I've already named some great players, but, you know, we had a lot of great players. And everybody got treated the same. There was never any of this. You know, sometimes we'd have kids show, I don't really like to lift weights. Coach Parker would literally look at him and be like, I don't give a shit. He said, I didn't ask you if you like to lift weights. You know, he'd say things like, you know, when did you assume that this was some kind of democracy that you were involved in? And, you know, and kids, you know, and when you, you get kids like that, and it was always when they were freshmen, but you get some of these freshmen, they're the top freshmen in the country coming in. And it was, I can still remember, it's really funny, Matt Gilroy, who ended up winning the Hobie Baker Award for us, uh, one day came in the weight room and told me he couldn't squat. I can't squat. My knees are really sore. And our rule was if you couldn't lift, you couldn't play. Like if you, basically, if you canceled out on a lift, you were injured and you should be in the training room. You can't go on the ice. So I went at that time, David Quinn, who's the Rangers coach, was our defensive coach. And I went to Coach Quinn. And I was like, Quinny, Gilroy's not going to be able to play this weekend. And now he had emerged as our best defenseman as a freshman. He looks at me and goes, what are you talking about? I'm like, his knees are sore. He says he can't lift. He's like, what? I'm like, I know. I watched him in practice yesterday. He doesn't look like his knees hurt. And uh, I watch, I'm looking at our weight room had glass walls. You know, going out into the hallway, I'm watching Coach Quinn and Matt Gilroy have a conversation in the hallway. And Matt Gilroy proceeds to walk in a minute later and it's like, feel a lot better. And he proceeds to get out of the bar and do the three sets of front squats that he was supposed to do. And I was like, okay. You know, and sometimes you look at that thing, that's not really sports psychology, but it is in the sense that when you say to guys, either you lift or you don't play, everybody lifts. Well, I train used to bring us our injury report and say, so-and-so, 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 they're all hurt. I'm like, oh, really? I saw them all. They were fine. They all lifted. Because they knew 
that, you know, in our situation, you couldn't be too hurt to lift, but healthy enough to practice. We just felt like those things go together. If you can skate, you should be able to get in the weight room. And obviously, you know, we talked about the idea. Yeah. Did we modify for guys that were legitimately injured? Yeah. But sometimes guys would just try to see, like I always say, guys are always probing for the loophole. Loophole. Can I get out of this? Is there a way to, is there a way around this? Is there an easier way? And we started to paint the picture of guys, just so you get it. There is no easier way. There's no alternative. You know, the, the way that this is going to be done is that nobody else does the way everybody else does it. And we all get better as a team. And then we used to always talk about it. And then we're going to be really good in March. That was always our goal. We always talked about the idea. We're going to be really good in March. And some of our guys never that mentality before they've been allowed to do you know they've been allowed to do whatever they want so when you're working with a full team such as the red Sox, the bruins how do you create a team environment but still tailor workouts for the individual athletes needs pros is different in terms of with the pros you don't have the same you know college you have the luxury of that sort of non you know it's not a democracy it's a it's kind of an aristocracy, you know, we're in charge and we're telling you what to do. In the pros, you don't have that. In the pros, you've got to be a much better salesman. So you're individualizing everything all the time in the pros because one of the things I learned when I was in pro sports is that, um, you, you know, you end up in a situation where all of these guys got to be pros before they met you. And when you, so we talked about sort of the, you know, the ego element of this whole thing, but we've got to be able to look at this from an ego perspective and say, Hey, I'm, I'm not the, you know, I'm not the be all end all God of strength and conditioning right now in terms of every single guy that's here was a professional baseball player before he ever met me. I said, you know, I, I used to say to guys, I'd say that right to them. Hey, you, you know, you, you were here before I got here. This is what I think we should do. And again, what you realize is the real pros, what I found, cause I, the same thing, like even private clients, you know, I had, you know, Vinny Cavalier and Rick Tockett and, you know, Brendan Shanahan, I mean, I had like so many great players, but it was really, most of the great players listened. They didn't, it's, the guys that fought you were generally the guys that were, you know, minor league guys, journeyman type guys, like, oh, I don't know, I think I think I should be able to do this. I can remember having a conversation with Brendan Shanahan saying, I don't like your program when I first met him. He said, I, I don't think what you're doing is helping you. He'd had a back problem. I said, you know, there was some exercise he was doing. I said, I would not do these things if I was you. And he literally looked at me and goes, well, what should I do? Tell me what to do. I told him what to do. And he trained with us for like five years after that. And, but it was just a simple matter of, you know, all he wanted to do was get better. And someone had told him, hey, this is the way to get better. And then I was like, ah, I don't necessarily think this is the way to get better. And then I presented a rational case for why that wasn't necessarily the way to get better. And so, you know, I think that's the biggest difference when you start training pros is you've got to realize that one, generally speaking, most of the time they're grown men and they were very, very talented before they ever met you. Whereas in college, you know, you're getting a kid at 18 years old, not grown men. And a lot of them were the most talented guy wherever they were, but physically they're not well enough. The good thing is most of them motivationally know, Hey, I got to get stronger to play jealous so they embrace the strength coach relatively readily when they get there, but they're very, very different situations. Yeah. I think it's important that you said that too, because 
you look at any successful athlete nowadays, you know, watching the Michael Jordan documentary, Connor McGregor, Connor McDavid, any successful athlete in any sport um, is always the hardest worker. You always see documentaries or hear stories about them doing absolutely absurd stuff, working out for hours, constantly working on their craft or finding new ways to get better. And it's obviously the reason that they're the very best at their sport. Um, And at the time you're working with some of these athletes, strength and conditioning was very new. So you had to show to them why it was important. And it was great that you had some of these people that had worked with you and trusted in your abilities and they produced the results, which then you could show, you know, on a resume to other people that, Hey, like this stuff actually works. I can remember I did Cam Healy. I, Cam Healy did not want to lift weights. He was one of those guys who said, I get too big if I lift weights. And I used to, whenever people said that to me, I'm like, yeah, right. You and everybody else. That's the, you know, I would say that's the least of your worries, but he did get too big. He was one of these guys. The last couple of years I trained him, we just did dips and pull-ups for upper body. And that was it. Cause if he didn't, he would get really big. Like he'd get football big. Like he'd be like, man, he'll be 240 in no time. If we let him keep going, you know, with like the conventional strength training that most people did. Yeah. But with him, when he didn't want to listen to me, I still remember I used to, cause I was always thinking of the mind game. Like, okay, how can I get this guy to listen? And I remembered once they, uh, I was reading the paper and they had a list of the 60 goal scorers in the NHL. And I think there'd only been 12 and he had scored 50 a bunch of times. And he was always, he was almost one of these guys who was afraid, you know, if I lift weights, I'll lose the magic. I won't be able to score. You know, I won't have the touch anymore. I won't be able to do this. And I brought him in the list of 60 goal scorers and I threw it in his stall. And he was like, what's that? And I said, that's the list of 60 goal scorers. I said, you're a 50 goal scorer. I said, but you could be a 60 goal scorer if you worked at it. And he was a very competitive guy. Like he would try to beat you at everything. You'd try to beat you at pool, ping pong. You know, we used to ride the bike. Like I'd always do things just a little better than him when he was rehabbing just to torture him. Cause I knew it would get him to, to do it harder. But he was, you know, it was like with him, all he had to do was rouse a little bit of competitiveness to get him going and he would do whatever you want. I got up to the point where I could do 15 chin-ups and he could do 16 because every week I'd do one more than him. I was younger then. I probably can't do five right now, but you know, I, I just keep going. But I would never beat him by a lot. I'd beat him by one. Every time I beat him, I'd beat him by one. Like I'd let him go first. And then whatever he did, I'd squeak, like I'd squeak one more out. And I did that for weeks at a time, but he got to the point. I mean, he scored 50 goals in 48 games one year when he was playing. He was playing kind of part-time. He had a bad knee, but it was one of the best, uh, you know, scoring performances ever in the history of the NFL that year. If you want to be successful, I think you need to have that competitive drive and that competitive competitiveness. Um, if you could go back and give your younger self a piece of advice, what would it be? Yeah, probably um, stay the course, really, because I would look at it and think there were so many things that could have happened to me that didn't. I, when I was 30, I thought I was going to get the Patriots head strength coach job. The, the head coach, Dick McPherson, had told me, you're my next strength coach. And all I had to do was interview with the GM and all of a sudden the, the assistant GM didn't like me because I was, you know, if you look at me, I mean, I don't look like an NFL strength coach and he wanted somebody that looked the part and I didn't get it. And it was probably the most disappointed I'd ever been in my life that, you know, I thought, Oh my God, I'm going to be the New England Patriots strength coach at 30 years old. Like what could possibly be better for a kid from Malden, Massachusetts than being the Patriots strength coach at 30. But now I look at my life, you know, I look at Michaela playing 
hockey at RMU and I look at my son playing hockey and I look at all the experiences that I've had and I think I'm so thankful that that didn't happen because it's like those TV shows where they talk about being able to go back and, and change time. If that had happened, my kids probably would have grown up. God knows where, you know, I probably would have, because Dick McPherson got fired, which would have put me back on the football circuit somewhere, going someplace else with somebody else. And my kids might have grown up in a football world and all the great things that hockey has brought me never would have happened. So I think probably what I would tell my younger self is that everything happens for a reason. Stay the course. Don't panic. And everything's going to be fine. You're kind of living the Massachusetts dream. You've gotten the chance to interact with the Patriots. You worked with the Bruins for what, like nine years. And then you won a world series with the Red Sox. So it's been an amazing career and, we thank you so much for coming on. I could listen to you talk all day. You're so knowledgeable and you have so many awesome stories. We can't thank you enough for coming on and we wish you nothing but continued success. Well, thank you guys for having me. I'm glad to be able to help you out.